both of my mom and my dad's family were um, migrant farm workers. So that's how they met in the migratory routes, working in the fields. And they married and uh, continued that work and had seven children. We were all born in different states. That's 62-year-old Francisca Montoya. She was born in Idaho, but when her oldest brother was old enough to start school in 1962, her family moved to Arizona. So my mom was a seasonal farm worker, which meant that um, she worked um, whatever crops were being harvested at the time. So in Arizona, you have some crops that are harvested in the summer and some in the fall and some in the in the spring. Francisca has fond memories of her childhood. Her mother often had to be at work before she and her siblings woke up, but when she got home from school, her mom was there, making them food. My mom making tortillas, you could smell the beans cooking, and oh, it just brought so much joy to us because we'd be hungry by then. But at the young age of 16, Francisca dropped out of school to join her mother in the fields. Well, I was young, and um, as all young people do, they need they need to work. If you're growing up in a in a poor family of my dad making minimum wage in an office job and my mom working seasonal work, and there are seven kids, when you become um, the age that you can work, you know you have to work. At the same time she dropped out of high school, she got pregnant and got married. She needed to support her family. But what she found was that doing so on a farm worker's wage was nearly impossible. It was hard to make a living. You couldn't, it was very hard to break out of that cycle of poverty. Francisca would eventually earn her GED and undergraduate degree. She would go on to become a leader in the Arizona farm workers movement. It was a movement her mother had been part of too. Its goal? To unionize farm workers and advocate for their rights. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. This week's episode comes out on Labor Day, so our team thought it would be fitting to explore one of the largest and important labor movements in our state's history, the farm workers movement. We'll be doing this by answering five questions about the movement. Your guides through those questions are Maritza Dominguez and Taylor Seely. Question number one. What was the farm workers movement, broadly speaking? Yeah, so the farm worker movement um, in Arizona, but also nationally, it was the most successful movement uh, to improve the conditions, labor conditions, and the rights of agricultural workers in the history of the United States. That's Marco Rosales. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of California, Davis. His work focuses on Arizona's Chicano movement, which was its civil rights movement for people of Mexican descent. The Chicano movement happened at the same time as the farm workers movement, which was led by the United Farm Workers, or UFW. The larger political atmosphere, right, the, the rise of protest movements in the 60s, kind of set the conditions, uh, made the conditions um, perfect for a successful farm worker movement uh, to occur. It was a national movement, 
protests occurred across the country. The Organization of Agricultural Workers has been called the greatest unfinished task facing the American labor movement. Usually only if people know anything about the farm worker movement, they usually associate it with California, with Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, Larry Itliang. In August of 1966, the National Farm Workers Association and the AFL-CIO Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee were merged to form the United Farm Workers Organizing Committee, AFL-CIO. Chavez is its director. I think that in labor camps in California and all over the country, the worker works there for, well, say, 10, 15 years. They're there, and if they're needed, they'll go work and work as long as the boss wants them to work, although at the loss of a lot of their own freedom, you know. Like, uh, they don't want to work on Sundays, and they have to because they live in the camp. Maybe they don't want to work 12 hours a day, and they have to because they live in the camp. But people don't know that Arizona also played a very significant role in the farm worker movement. That brings us to our second question. What was the state of farm labor at that time? Or in other words, why was this movement necessary? What started it? Farm workers who were primarily Mexican or Mexican origin had been exploited as both a racial and labor underclass um, in Arizona and in the United States Southwest in general. Um, You know, they were essentially powerless. Marco said that a lot of owners had farms in both Arizona and California. Or if they didn't have an operation in a second state, there was a high likelihood that their family members did. That enabled growers to work together to curb union organizing efforts in the region. Within that relationship and that dynamic, that allowed for a number of conditions that were deplorable at the time, and we would consider deplorable today as well. Laborers often moved from work at various fields or farms. This meant that their housing was semi-permanent and substandard. Historically, the farm family, whether migrant or local, has lived either on the edge of town or in a labor camp. For decades, the prevailing water supply has been from a central faucet. For thousands of farm families, over the many decades, there has been no indoor water supply, no indoor toilets. And then when you looked at, you know, working conditions, um, uh, it was common for uh, farm workers to go to work and have um, no drinking water. In other words, they had to bring their own drinking water. If there was a water supplied, Marco said it was often the same water that was being used to irrigate the fields. That meant it could contain pesticides, which the workers were often exposed to in the fields as well. And to add to his other woes, the farm worker faces the increasing threat of killer chemicals. Workers were required to use short-handled hoes in the field. That required them to be bent over to trim or harvest crops for hours and hours under the hot sun, oftentimes for little pay and long hours. Farm workers have consistently, before the farm worker movement, um, and even after the farm worker movement, have been some of the lowest paid uh, workers uh, in the United States. An operating engineer working under a union contract earns $5.19 an hour, with an additional 54 cents in fringe benefits. 
an unorganized farm worker in California operating the same size equipment is paid an average of 150 an hour. The farm worker has no fringe benefits and no provisions for overtime pay. Uh, obviously, there was no bathrooms. Um, there was no such things as uh, breaks, work breaks. You just worked uh, for eight, 10, 12 hours. Um, the work obviously is very physically demanding uh, and there were no job protections. You know, you, if you complained about anything, the answer was always, well, you, if you don't like this job, you can leave. The farm workers movement wanted to address these issues. They wanted to unite farm workers across the nation to demand better housing and working conditions, as well as fair wages. That brings us to our next set of questions. What ultimately happened at the height of the movement? What was and wasn't achieved? The movement in Arizona didn't exactly mirror the movement in states like California. Instead, Marco said Arizona's movement played out in two stages. The first happened from 1965 to 1972. That's when Cesar Chavez came to Arizona to train union organizers. In the first stage, the farm worker movement in Arizona was more informed, more influenced, and more directed by the UFW coming out of California, by uh, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and other organizers coming from California, right? There was uh, funding, there was training, um, there was very close, coordinated efforts that were working in concert. It was during this era that Francisca's mother became involved in the movement. I remember her um, going to Safeway to picket, um, to picket a non-union grapes. I remember her um, being involved with a, a lots of other volunteers uh, raising money um, to pay for um, expenses related to uh, the movement. I remember um, her going to many meetings where they would organize and plan and strategize what to do next. And so there was this little kid growing up, seeing her mom being involved in a movement and not being home much. But it was exciting because um, she would share with us what was going on and what was taking place. And, and um, she was being introduced to many other people that she didn't know. And it felt good to be part of the solution of something and fighting for something. Strikes were organized in the citrus and onion industries in Arizona. In 1970, farm workers organized a four-day march from Tolleson to the state capitol. The march, which ended on Easter Sunday, called attention to the lack of unemployment benefits and workmen's compensation in the agricultural industry. Francisca begged her parents to let her participate. They agreed to let her march on the final day. She remembers making signs for the protest and the chants of Hamas será vencida, meaning the people united will never be defeated. And uh, we were about 15,000 people in that procession when we landed or when we arrived at the state capitol. And it was, it was, it was so, it felt so empowering as a little kid 
to be a part of, of such a great um, event that brought to light the struggle of farm workers and to see so many people supporting the movement. Um, it, was, um, it was a very joyous occasion and a great way to, to celebrate a, a holiday weekend. Then, in 1972, a piece of legislation passed that would stall the efforts of union organizers. The Agricultural uh, Employment Relations Act um, was passed by the state legislator in 1972 and signed into law by Governor Jack Williams. And what it did was it basically outlawed um, various organizing tactics that were essential to the farm worker movement's success up to that point. Some of those tactics included outlawing what was called the secondary boycott. This meant unions couldn't boycott products that weren't directly related to their own employer. So a sign saying something like, don't buy non-union lettuce, could incur a fee up to $5,000 and a year of jail time. The law also curtailed workers' abilities to pick it outside of grocery stores. One of the most damaging aspects of the law was that it lengthened the process for unions to gain legal recognition. The workforce changes from season to season and from year to year. And what the law basically said was that whoever is going to vote in that union recognition election has to be like the same group of workers that was there at the beginning. This allowed growers to easily challenge the legitimacy of the unions and invalidated much of the laborers' efforts. It was a big defeat for the farm workers, and it created a bit of a lull in the movement. After about three years, things picked up steam again. Arizona's second movement came from 1975 to 1980. During that period, leaders in the Arizona movement questioned how directly their strategies and actions should be tied to union leadership in California. But there were other disagreements as well. The real breaking point uh, came actually over the issue of undocumented immigration. In California, they, the, the, the policy was to repel undocumented immigrants from the fields and from, um, from the union. When workers who were citizens went on strike, undocumented workers felt pressured to keep working. Otherwise, their bosses could report them to the authorities. So union leadership viewed them as being strike breakers. They thought undocumented workers weakened the collective bargaining power of their union. And in Arizona, a different approach uh, was actually adopted. And that was instead of repelling and excluding um, undocumented workers from the union and from participating in the organizing, they decided to embrace them. The Arizona Farm Worker Union split with its California counterparts. They explicitly wrote in their constitution that they would defend undocumented farm workers, who they believed were the most vulnerable. Yeah, Arizona's union was, was very forward-thinking, very progressive on that matter. Um, and for a while, it made them very, very successful. It made them strong, um, right? Because growers use the presence of undocumented workers as a way to weaken, to split the workforce. And by eliminating that possibility, by organizing all of them, um, they were stronger for a time. 
Ultimately, the protests were able to achieve a few things. Most notably, many growers agreed to union contracts, which improved working conditions for their employees. This includes getting rid of the short-handled hoe and banning the pesticides we'd mentioned earlier. Because the farm workers had been successful in um, unionizing and obtaining contracts in California, some of those companies had operations in Arizona. So I, along with my mom, um, had the opportunity to actually work in the fields under a union contract. Um, we worked uh, picking grapes in uh, Litchfield under a UFW contract. And then we also worked picking lettuce um, in uh, land that was leased by agribusiness in the Salt River Indian Reservation. Uh, and we picked lettuce uh, under, under a UFW union contract. Can you explain to me a little bit about how the union, like what benefits the union contract gave you guys that, you know, you didn't have beforehand? Well, I can tell you that um, every three hours uh, we would stop and we would have a break. At noon, we would stop for a half hour to eat our lunch and we were being paid through this time. Um, I can tell you that the that the wages were much higher than non-union rates, and that um, you, if if something happened at work, you had a union rep that you could uh, bring your concern or your issue to, and they would get it resolved without fear of retaliation or being fired. Um, it was a totally different working environment. You had bathrooms. You had drinking cold drinking water with individual cups. Um, it was just a totally different working environment. That brings us to our next question. We just talked about Arizona's union leadership and its decision to split from California's leadership. So who were the notable figures in Arizona's movement? Although there are two stages of Arizona's farm worker movement, and both of those stages are distinct um, in, in their own ways and have their own characteristics, the one consistent through line throughout both stages is a man named Gustavo Gutierrez. Gustavo Gutierrez was a spiritual and organizational leader. He was present at the 1965 training led by Cesar Chavez, and he stayed active through the farm labor organization efforts indigenous organizing efforts, and other union efforts until his death in 2012. Like, yes, even though Gustavo um, was a consistent through line, you know, he didn't have the same kind of uh, celebrity and following as someone uh, like Chavez, and he never sought to have. But Gustavo Gutierrez wasn't the only leader in Arizona's movement. Arizona's movement was actually... You could say it was a, a it was a bit more egalitarian. I would say in terms of just like responsibilities and roles, there was there was input and um, participation from so many people throughout the valley, throughout the state. Other leaders include Guadalupe Sanchez and Carolina Rosales, or who was known as Carolina Hernandez after getting married. And of course, there was Francisca Montoya, who you've heard from throughout today's episode. 
After earning her college degree, Francisca started to work with organizations that were created after the boycotts and the strikes of the 60s and 70s. This included organizations like the Maricopa County Organizing Project, Centro Adelante Campesino, and Clinica Adelante. Clinica Adelante now exists as Adelante Healthcare. Well, I think that um, certainly the farm worker movement for a lot of people locally who supported it, um, it really created a paradigm shift in their mind um, to go from helplessness to self-determination. It built awareness that through unity, um, you can get things done. You may not accomplish everything that you're striving for, but you're moving forward. And for our final question, how is life today different because of this movement? It was significant and momentous in and of itself for agricultural workers to win contracts, to gain official recognition. And that that's, yeah, you can't understate uh, or you can't overstate how significant that was um, because it is exceedingly difficult to, to organize uh, farm workers because of uh, their mobility, because of their powerlessness in, in the United States economy, um, because there's usually language and cultural barriers. Marco said that because of the union movement, farm workers were able to gain contracts that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. But that's not to say that conditions are perfect today. An estimate from UC Davis said that 60% of California's farm workers are undocumented. This leaves them vulnerable to arrest and deportation. In 2019, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. That bill would give undocumented farm workers a legal pathway to becoming a citizen. However, the bill stalled in the Senate and has yet to be reconsidered. Yeah, the farm worker movement was very successful in achieving um, and winning a lot of contracts that, that raise the wages. Um, but of course, wages always have to keep up with inflation. They've stagnated uh, for agricultural workers since the 80s. Um, but also other conditions have, have allowed um, exploitation, um, different abuses of agricultural workers uh, to flourish, to resurface, to become prominent. Marco said undocumented workers remain especially vulnerable as a threat of deportation means they have less power to push back against low wages and poor working conditions. Still, he feels that the Chicana movement and farm workers movement laid the groundwork for a lot of activism that remains in place today. Things like Arizona's Show Me Your Papers law, SB 1070, or California's Prop 187, a bill aimed at limiting undocumented immigrants from using tax-funded programs like public schools. Collectively, the achievements of that time period demonstrated that Mexican origin people is extended to, to other races and ethnicities um, that that we belong here. Not only that we belong here, but Arizona is as much ours uh, as any other community of people who live who live in Arizona. Did SP 1070 have anything to do with you specifically deciding to run for office? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, like, I came from the era of Prop 187 as well. 
like I live bad. We are the dreamers. Um, but I think fundamentally and most important is that it allowed people to move um, from fear towards action because fear holds us back. And if we've never seen success, it's hard for us to, to visualize it. So to summarize, the farm workers' movement in the 60s and 70s was an attempt to unionize and empower those laborers. Farm workers used boycotts and strikes to push back against substandard living and working conditions. They were able to make strong wins, but many issues still exist today, especially for those who are undocumented. We could not persevere through this pandemic if it weren't for the labor that, that food workers, um, farm workers, you know, and that goes all the way like to restaurant workers, meat packers, butchers, anyone involved uh, in the harvesting and production of, of our food, we should see their labor as essential and they should be compensated and they should work in conditions that correspond to that sense of respect and dignity. Maritza and Taylor, thanks so much for guiding us through that important piece of Arizona history. What's something you learned in working on this episode? Learning about the impacts the movement had off the fields was super interesting. Francisca had told me that they saw a lack of healthcare facilities on the west side of the valley. So they created their own clinic, Adelante Healthcare, which is still around today. So it's fascinating to see that there are still long lasting impacts that they created. You know, I liked learning how this movement laid the foundation for other movements. Our team just released a five-episode series on Senate Bill 1070, which was the law that critics say codified racial profiling. And I learned that Gustavo Gutierrez, who was a main leader in the farm worker movement, was also there during SB 1070 mentoring the younger activists. He died in 2012, so he literally spent his entire life fighting for what he believed in. Well, thank you again for your work on this episode. And thanks to podcast editor Katie O'Connell, who scripted and edited this episode. Audio in today's episode comes from the 1966 documentary, The Land is Rich, courtesy of the Perlinger Archives. Additional audio comes from the 1966 documentary, Huelga and The Telegraph. Listeners, if there's a chapter of Arizona's history that you'd like to learn more about, let us know. You can submit your questions at valley101podcast.azcentral.com, or you can find us on Twitter at valley101pod. And if you haven't subscribed to our weekly I Never Knew newsletter, you can find that at azcentral.com newsletters. I'm Kayla White signing off for today. Take care until next week.